Well, I suppose, like me, a lot of you really enjoy uh, having a good story to read. And um, a well-written one. But have you ever been reading a writer's work and found yourself wondering, why on earth did they go to all the effort of producing this? Well, it certainly happened to me. Over the years, I've developed an interest in the reasons that authors have for producing their work. And I found a website recently where some famous writers answered the question, why do you write? Listen to some of the responses. Cormac McCarthy said, I don't know why I started writing. I don't know why anybody does it. Maybe they're bored or failures at something else. Harper Lee replied, any writer worth his salt writes to please himself. It's a self-exploratory operation that is endless, an exorcism of divine discontent. Ian Rankin responded, I started writing to make, I'm not doing the Scottish accent, I started writing to make sense of the city of Edinburgh, asking questions about Scotland and perhaps pointing towards its possible future. Finally, Lionel Shriver answered, in the big picture, I write for an audience of people I've never met. I aim not to be boring to strangers. Remember how Jesus called a group of men to leave their earthly, natural business, such as using nets to throw out of a boat and bring fish out of one place, Lake Galilee, where they were living, into another place, the land, where they died and became food. Jesus then sent them as apostles to engage in a heavenly supernatural occupation. They were to use the good news about Jesus, God's rescuer, to bring fellow human beings instead of fish out of a place where they were spiritually dead, the kingdom of darkness of this world, into a place where they were spiritually alive, God's kingdom, the kingdom of light and life. Remember one of these fishermen was John. He and his brother James were sons of a man called Zebedee and they had a successful fishing business. They were partners with uh, Peter and Andrew in this business, but Jesus had other business for them. And John was engaged in writing accounts of the impact that Jesus had upon his life. And John tells us why he wrote his account of Jesus' life, the Gospel of John. If you want to check that I'm not telling you fibs, it's there in John chapter 20 in his, his gospel, the end of the 20th chapter of his account, in verses 30 and 31, he says, Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So we're going to look at a portion of John's Gospel this morning. 
remember that John recorded Jesus' farewell to his disciples with a, a supernatural purpose. Unlike Cormac McCarthy, John knew what his purpose was. Unlike Harper Lee or Ian Rankin, John's purpose wasn't focused on himself or some search for meaning. And unlike Lionel Shriver, John didn't write so that his readers would have something too interesting to engage them and stop them being bored. John wrote to convince everyone who reads and hears these words, to convince them that Jesus is God's Messiah, God's chosen, anointed rescuer. Why did John want to convince people of this? Because he was convinced that anyone who believes that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, will have life in his name. That's John's heavenly, supernatural purpose. If you're here today and you haven't yet been caught in the net of the gospel message and brought out of the kingdom of death, of darkness, into the kingdom of life and light, be warned, John is fishing for you as you read these words. If you have believed that Jesus is God's rescuer for you, John's encouraging you to live life to the full, that new heavenly life that you have in Christ. So let's read our New Testament reading. It's the first part, if you like, of the, the farewell that Jesus gives to his disciples. It's there from the end of John chapter 13 to the end of chapter 14. So 1331 to 1431. So when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or places to live. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 
And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. 
Let's commit our time around the, the word of God um, to him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that as we consider this portion, these portions of your word today, that you would reveal yourself as the way, the truth and the life. Help us to walk that way, to believe that truth and to live that life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've seen two portions of the Bible today. Uh, The second has got enough spiritual food for, I think, a year's worth of spiritual feasting. So don't worry, I'm not going to try to force feed a year's worth of spiritual food into you this morning. That would be unseemly. I just simply wanted to cover the whole scope of that, that first part of Jesus' farewell discourse, particularly because it brings into focus the three-in-one nature of God. Jesus speaks very much about himself. As, as we saw, John, the, the fisherman, become apostle of Christ, has a laser focus in writing his book. He wants the people who hear the words of this book to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing they might have life in his name. That's his laser focus. So the focus is on Jesus. And of course, Jesus speaks as well about his Father and about the Holy Spirit. He speaks of a journey that he's going on, that his disciples can't accompany him in at the moment, but later on they will. And as we saw with the boys and girls this morning, a journey involves having a good road to travel on, a reliable guidance for the journey, a a faithful map, a reliable map, and a worthwhile destination. And Jesus, in this portion, and I believe David in Psalm 16, conveys the conviction that the living God himself is the way, the truth, and the life. It's my conviction, and I know the conviction of many of us here, that believers in the Old Testament times were the first members of the church that we're all part of as we trust in the living God. They were part of God's covenant of grace, just like we are. Although God was administering that covenant to a church in its childhood, he was using pictures and symbols to teach them about Jesus, the Saviour who had come. So as a pattern of the faith that Old Testament believers had in the living God, let's look at David, Jesus' ancestor in regard to his human nature. Let's look specifically at that poem that David wrote that's become part of the songbook of God's people. We sang and we read Psalm 16 earlier, as we saw a michtam of David, possibly a silent prayer, silent because of David's need to take refuge from enemies. Jesus says to his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. We read earlier in John 13 that Jesus' heart was troubled because 
Judas was going to betray him. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus in his mercy, even though his heart was troubled, could say to his disciples at the beginning of our reading, in the beginning of John 14 and towards the end, don't let your hearts be troubled, don't be afraid. David's heart was troubled just like the disciples' heart was troubled. But he found comfort in the living God. He needed to take refuge in Yahweh. He saw more and more people around him chasing after other gods. Perhaps even some of God's covenant people in the land. Perhaps even some of the leading officials that he admired so much in the nation. But in his trouble, David expressed his faith in God and God's faithfulness to him. His focus was completely upon God, using his personal covenant name. It's there in capital letters, Lord, the four Hebrew letters, possibly pronounced Yahweh, sometimes um, translated as Jehovah. But he used that personal covenant name. And he acknowledged God as his Lord and King. And he said that he had nothing good apart from God himself. And it is, isn't it interesting that Jesus said of the, the prince of this world, of Satan, that Jesus had nothing to do with him, that David was convinced that he had nothing but good in God and no good in anyone else but God. See how David expressed his determination not to be involved in pagan worship or even to use the names of pagan gods. He didn't want to know the sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow that is the end result of following that evil way. And that false teaching. He knew that he needed to travel a good road and have a reliable map because he wanted to arrive at the destination in the living God of fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. David knew that God watched over every detail of his life. He uses a word picture in there. He says, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Do you remember when we looked at the book of Joshua in our Bible studies, how the land was allocated and different tribes got different portions of the land and different families within the tribes and people would get measuring lines out and they would measure up who got what portion of land. David uses this word picture. If you like... David's father Jesse's ancestors had been allocated a really good portion of land within the tribal area of Judah and David was set to inherit that land from his father. But David said, yes, even though I've inherited some really good countryside, it's really fertile, it's, it looks good, it's, it's very pleasant to be in, my best inheritance of all is God himself. He said, O Yahweh, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. David refuses to use a cup to pour out 
blood-stained offerings to pagan gods. But he will trust in the true and living God to fill up his cup, to give him all the good things that God promises to his people. And David also rejoiced that in the Bible, God gave him counsel. Even when he couldn't sleep, David found comfort in thinking deeply about the truths of God's instruction. David also rejoiced in an intimate relationship with Yahweh. In verse 8 he said, Because Yahweh is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. And then in verse 11 he says, At Yahweh's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, if you're going to be literal-minded and picky and forget that this is a poem, you think, how can David be at God's right hand and God can be at David's right hand? That doesn't work. <clears throat> Maybe it works if they're facing each other, I don't know, but it's p- purely a word picture to describe the close, intimate relationship between David and the living God. So... What was David's conviction in his time of trouble about the way, the truth and the life? David had unshakable faith that Yahweh, the living God, would show him the path of life. That he was the one who gave him counsel. That in his presence was fullness of joy. At his right hand were pleasures forevermore. David was convinced that because of God's faithfulness to him, he would know eternal life. And of course, this was only made possible by God's, by David's, or great David's, greater son, Jesus. It was Jesus who completely fulfilled the promise of verse 10. You will not leave my soul in the place of the dead, nor will you allow your Holy One to see decay. Today, the first day of the week, we rejoice in the truth that Jesus rose from dead. Rose from the dead and conquered the last enemy of his people. It was in Jesus that that verse of David's psalm found its complete fulfilment. Jesus Jesus' body did not see decay or corruption. Jesus was not, did not remain in the place where dead people remain. David himself was convinced that in the covenant God, the living God, Yahweh himself, he had a good road, a reliable map, and a desirable destination. So if we fast forward to Jesus and his farewell. What do we see? We see that the disciples' hearts were troubled. Why were their hearts troubled? Well, Jesus is starting to talk about going away. And Peter clearly has an inkling that death is involved in this somehow. And... Peter's really worried about Jesus' statement. 
Where I'm going, you cannot come. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. I know a lot of us have been involved in the care of people close to us who have been facing tough and difficult times and even facing death itself. It's very natural to be troubled in our heart at times like that. And there can be three basic questions that occupy our thoughts at a time like this. And of course, they're all about life's destination. When my life comes to an end, when I die, when I pass from this world into the world to come, where am I going to end up? What's it going to be like? We also wonder about the pathway to life's destination. I'd like to think that I could go to somewhere where I could have joyful life that goes on forever. But what's the way to get there? But thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, there's the question of confidence. Having confidence about both the destination and the pathway. How can I be sure that this idea of joyful life that goes on forever, pleasures forevermore, is real? How can I be confident that that's not just something that people have made up or it's a tradition of our ancestors or just a fairy story that someone's told? And even if it is true that that is a possible destination, how can I be confident of the way to get there? I don't know if any of us here or any of you here have been troubled in your heart thinking about things like this. Perhaps you have. Perhaps it's a daily, a daily occurrence with you to think, what is my life's destination? Where am I going to end up in the next world? How am I going to travel to that destination? How confident can I be that I know the right way to go and the best destination to arrive at? Well, Jesus encouraged his disciples to believe that Afterwards, that is when they eventually died, there was a good destination for them to be, to arrive at, a good way to get there, and a good reason to be confident about the destination and the pathway. You've probably all heard the, the story of the Sunday school teacher who was, had the class around, around him and he said, now boys and girls, I'm thinking about a grey something that's grey and furry and it lives up in a gum tree. Can anyone tell me what it is? And all the boys and girls fidget. And nobody's going to answer. And eventually, one of the little girls puts her hand up. She says, I know the answer's Jesus, but it sounds a lot like a koala. <laughs> because it seems to be that in lots of Sunday school lessons, we ask a question and the answer is Jesus. Well, here 
the answer really is Jesus. Who is the way? Jesus. Who is the truth? Jesus. Who is the way? Jesus. And Jesus emphatically draws attention to himself. John, by writing this down, draws attention to Jesus himself. John wants us to know and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God's anointed rescuer. And that believing we might have life in his name. And Jesus emphasises that he himself is the way, the truth and the life. He's the destination. He's the way to get there. And he's the way to be confident that the destination is real and good and the way is reliable. And of course he emphasised that he and his father were one, that he would send the Holy Spirit to be with the disciples, that his disciples would share in what he would accomplish by going away, by his death and his resurrection, that no one else would, only those who trusted him. The only way to be with God forever was through him. He emphasised that he spoke the truth when he made these promises. The things he didn't said give the best reason for trusting that heaven is real, that trusting in what Jesus has done is the only way to get there. Amen. Now I think I have omitted a hymn, my apologies, um, so I think we will leave out um, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds, my apologies, um, please sing it together at home this afternoon, it's, um, it's just a beautiful picture of all the all of the intimate relationships that uh, the Lord Jesus has with his people. Let's uh, pray in response to the sermon and then sing our final hymn together. Lord, help us to follow you, for you are the way we must follow, the truth we must believe, the life for which we must hope. You are the secure way, the infallible truth, the unending life. Help us to follow you, the way, so we shall know you, the truth, and you shall make us free and we shall live the life everlasting. Amen.